up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll discuss research on glaucoma that's taking place in Syracuse. We're doing a lot of the basic science now to try to understand what is the mechanism of action that is causing this problem. Then we'll go over heart failure and a new program for patients that's like having a nurse call bell at home. With a heart failure diagnosis in your problem list, it will trigger the nurses in my department to make a follow-up phone call to check on them once they've been discharged from the ED. And we'll explore new forms of rehabilitation for spinal injury that use an exoskeleton. This is literally a skeleton that is outside the body that has motors, a battery that does the walking for you. All that and a visit from our healing muse coming up after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, medicine, and science with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, a pair of nurses will tell about a new program for patients with heart failure that's like having a nurse call bell at home. Then, a specialist in spinal cord injury discusses rehabilitation and the use of an exoskeleton to help people walk again. But first, a vision researcher explains the work she's doing on glaucoma, an eye disease that can lead to blindness. The central goal of Upstate's Center for Vision Research is to prevent blinding eye disease. One of those diseases is glaucoma. And here to talk about her research on this disease is Audrey Bernstein, an associate professor in the departments of ophthalmology, as well as biochemistry and molecular biology, and cell and developmental biology. Welcome, Dr. Bernstein. Thank you. It's fantastic to be here. Great to have you. Let's begin by explaining glaucoma. Okay, so glaucoma is actually a grouping of diseases. This is very common, just like you hear for other diseases such as cancer. Uh, it is not one disease, it is many different kinds of diseases. And so it's categorized by most people have elevated intraocular pressure called IOP. So not all glaucomas have high IOP, but many of them do. And over time, the elevated pressure in your eye leads to um, a illness in the back of your eye. So the optic nerve is eventually affected by the pressure. And the optic nerve is what connects the eye to the brain? Correct. Okay. So uh, what are the reasons? There's a lot of people working on this. There are genetic causes, uh, possibly environmental causes. Uh, no one knows exactly what gets us into this position, but as a overarching title, we can say that it's an age-related disease. So older people. Right. So most glaucomas are in older people. So there's some component of aging in our cells that adds to the development of glaucoma. Okay. All right. And once a person has glaucoma, 
I know you're a researcher and not an eye doctor, but once a person has that, there's ways, medications, Absolutely. So there's a number of medications that work to lower the pressure. And people will be given those medications first, and that works typically for uh, several years. Um, The next thing that can be done is a surgery called a TRAB surgery, trabeculectomy. And uh, that surgically releases the pressure in mm. the eye. Okay. So those are the that's the typical uh, progression of treatment. Okay. Well, how would you explain the glaucoma research that you're involved in? So the kind of research that I'm doing on glaucoma is for a kind of glaucoma called exfoliation glaucoma or pseudo exfoliation glaucoma. There's two names uh, for the same disease. And this is defined by a buildup of what are called protein aggregates in the eye. So uh, at the front of the eye is the cornea, and behind that is the lens. And the cornea and the lens work together to refract light onto the back of your eye, onto the retina. And that's where we get the focused light. And so in this disease, there is a buildup of these protein aggregates on the lens. And then there is a flow to the eye, aqueous humor it's called. And the aqueous flow brings these protein aggregates off of the lens and into what is called the trabecular meshwork. And so you can imagine it's sort of a sieve in your eye and if you have protein aggregates floating around in the front of your eye, it causes problems. So this correlates with the buildup of that pressure I was talking about. So the protein aggregates, are these bad things? So they're not inherently bad proteins, but uh, they have come together in a bit of a mess and uh, into a stable, what they're called stable toxic aggregates. And so you don't want these in your eye because the end point is that it causes inflammation and what would be called a fibrotic response in the trabecular meshwork. And again, this leads to the elevated pressure. So my job has been to look at the cell biology of how would these protein aggregates be made what cells in the eye could be making them, um, and what approaches can we take to either prevent the formation of these protein aggregates or, um, once they're formed, dissolve them. So that was the task when we started our project. Well, let me ask a stupid question. Um, Protein aggregate, we hear about protein in our diet. Right. This isn't the same yes, thing, or is it? It is actually the same thing. So uh, on a cellular level, uh, your cells are making proteins all the time. We can get proteins from our diet as well as we make proteins. And on a normal day in a healthy tissue, uh, the cell knows how to make the proteins properly. And so they're folded into a three-dimensional structure that enables them to have the proper activity in the cell. And so it's actually quite amazing. It mostly works. And then inside the cell, there's ways to 
uh, deal with a problem if it doesn't work properly. And not working properly can mean that the protein becomes misfolded, let's say. And if things are misfolded, they come out of solution is a way of, of thinking about it. So they glom together, essentially. Hmm. So the cell can handle this kind of problem in several different ways very successfully over time. But again, like glaucoma, what defines many age-related diseases is that the cell can no longer handle these misfolded proteins. And this is in fact what we think is going on in this type of glaucoma. So this kind of problem defines Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, Huntington in terms of there is a component of those diseases where there is a misfolded protein problem and the cell cannot handle that problem any longer. And when the cell can't deal with it, it will expel those proteins outside the cell to kind of save itself. So in saving that cell, it can cause a problem in the tissue. Huh. Which I didn't is, realize there was any similarity with, you mentioned Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. There is. I mean, Just, they have all different, um, you know, there's many components to those diseases, so I'm not saying that right. everything is the same. But as an uh, idea, there is a problem, as, a, as an overarching idea, there is a problem with degradation inside the cell with aging. Huh. Okay. So what we think is there is a genetic component to this disease where you can have a predisposition to later in life getting this disease. But where it gets complicated is that you can have that predisposition and not get the disease as well, which I know is, is very confusing. So then the question is, what leans you to one side or the other to developing what's called the pathology? So we think it's a combination of some genetic predisposition and something that goes along with aging, which is, as I said, not being able to handle this misfolded proteins, having poor degradation inside the cell. So just like we want to throw out and get rid of our trash, the cell wants to do the same thing. And so it tries to get rid of the trash in any way that it can. And eventually, this leads to a problem. You can imagine if you have a buildup of trash in your house and then you throw it outside your house, but it's building up it's inside so your great. house as well, it's a problem. It's exactly the same thing for the cell. It leads to what is called oxidative stress. And it's just as you imagine. The cell gets very stressed and uh, it uh, comes to kind of a cycle of more stress leads to more of the disease, and then we kind of spiral into the pathology that we see. Well, interesting. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with vision researcher Audrey Bernstein. So identifying the problem, but some of the solution that you're looking at um, deals with regeneration. Is that correct? So we can look at this in a few different ways. Uh, I'm a basic scientist, so we're very interested in what are the exact causes of, number one, perhaps the misfolding of the protein, or 
can we look at pathways inside the cell that shuttle these proteins specifically outside the cell? Um, can we look at problems with um, the degradation? Why is that happening? So from the basic science side of it, we're very interested in finding what really is going wrong in this disease. Um, in parallel to that, we can say that, okay, this disease looks very similar to other age-related neurodegenerative diseases that have been studied for years. So maybe we can leverage some of the compounds that are in clinical trials, for instance, for other age-related diseases, and can we apply that to this disease? Interesting. So we're trying that as well. We um, are able to get what are called primary cells from patients. So when exfoliation patients get the surgery, undergo the surgery to relieve the pressure, there is a piece of tissue that is normally discarded. So we are not doing the surgery to get this tissue. It is thrown away as a part of doing this surgery. And with patient consent and IRB consent, uh, we are able to take that piece of tissue and grow the cells from that person and look at those cells. So we have many cell lines from patients that have this disease. And we also aim to use those cells for drug screening. So to say, okay, we don't know exactly what's going on, but we see some of the same problems in other age-related diseases, can we use these primary cells to screen drugs that are being used in these other diseases to see if we can improve what's called the phenotype or, or improve the disease state that we see inside the cells? Are you finding any, um, anything that looks like it's effective? Uh, so we haven't started the big screen that I've been talking about right now. Uh, we're going to start it in 2018. Oh, okay. So that's upcoming. That's a, up, up and coming. We're doing a lot of the basic science now to try to understand what is the mechanism of action that is causing this problem. So there might be some promise with things that already exist. There could be. Are there other um, therapies um, on the horizon that you are interested in or looking at? Uh, for this disease, no. This disease is treated like other glaucomas, which is to use um, IOP-lowering drugs. Intraocular pressure lowering. Right, so drugs okay. that, that lower the pressure. It's the same drugs that are used for all the different kinds of glaucoma. Uh, there are new drugs for that coming online, we say. Uh, those have to do with uh, relaxing the tissue in a way. So uh, you imagine we have a skeleton inside us, and inside a cell, there's the same thing. It's called the cytoskeleton. And so that holds the tension of the cell. So the idea is to relieve some of the tension inside the cell, all the cells in a particular tissue in your eye, and that will kind of relax the eye as a way of putting it. And so that lets the, reduces the pressure and lets the flow through your eye happen easier. And then reducing the pressure is ultimately what we wanna do. Interesting, well it's exciting research. I appreciate you being willing to share 
you're finding so far. Um, My guest has been vision researcher Audrey Bernstein. She's an associate professor in the Department of Ophthalmology, as well as biochemistry and molecular biology and cell and developmental biology. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. with heart failure that's like having a nurse call bell at home. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Heart failure is the most common reason people over age 65 are admitted to the hospital. It's a disease that develops over time, and there are things you can do toward prevention. With me to discuss this topic are two nurses from Upstate, Joey Michelle Angelina, who is a nurse manager in the Triage and Transfer Center, and Lori Langdon, the Heart Failure Program Coordinator. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thank you. So let's start by defining heart failure. Lori? Okay. Um, heart failure is actually a clinical syndrome that uh, affects the heart's ability to pump blood so that it can meet all the needs of the body. Uh, it does not mean that the heart has failed. Sometimes that's what people think yeah. when they hear that says- term, and it's very scary for them. Okay. So it's just not pumping as effectively as it needs to. Right. Mm-hmm. So how would someone know if they have heart failure? Um, well, some of the most common symptoms are shortness of breath. Um, that's probably the most classic one. And sometimes what ha- will happen is when people try to sleep at night, it will wake them up very suddenly. So that's never normal to get woken up at night because you can't breathe. Uh, the other classic sign is swelling of the feet, ankles, or legs. Um, and those are probably the most common common signs okay is it a disease that mostly affects older people or um it actually can affect anyone of any age it is most common and as we age it is one of the most common um diseases that people will get but um it can develop at any age for um a lot of reasons um men and women affected equally um men and women um more common in men, but like with many things with heart disease, women catch up. So, as they get yeah. older, mm-hmm. or whatever. So. Yeah. All right. Well, many people with heart failure seek hospital care that's related to heart failure, but many people who come to the hospital with other problems also have heart failure. Right. right. It's mm-hmm. one of the things. So, um, Joey, how common is it for people with heart failure to make repeat hospital visits? Right now, nationwide heart failure readmission is about 27 percent that's a that's a big number that's the highest diagnosis for readmission Mm -hmm. currently nationwide okay here at upstate we have a readmission rate of 18 to 19 percent for heart failure currently Mm -hmm. which is better than the national rate but still room for improvement Mm -hmm. all right so tell me what upstate is doing um to to work on that improving that well one program that we have launched recently 
is a nurse-led follow-up phone call to patients that have been seen in the ED that are over 65 years old that have been discharged back home with heart failure as a diagnosis. So in other words, it doesn't mean they were seen in the ED for heart failure. It means that they have a diagnosis of heart failure. So if they come to the emergency room um, for a broken arm or anything, and on their discharge notes, heart failure is one of the issues they've got going on, your team will learn about them and follow up with a phone call. With a heart failure diagnosis in your problem list, it will trigger the nurses in my department to make a follow-up phone call to check on them once they've been discharged from the ED. Okay. So how does that go? What What's the phone conversation like? So we have labeled it or named it as telecaring. Okay. It is a nurse-led follow-up phone call, like I said, to this population. And it has five components to it. It's going to check on general health status. How are you doing since you've been discharged home? How are you feeling? Second thing is going to check on medications. Did you receive new medications on discharge? Did they change your medications since you've been back home? Making sure that they understand what they're supposed to be taking and when. Home services to find out if the patients need any type of equipment now that they're back home to help them with recovery. Whether or not they need a visiting nurse to come in to check things for them, to check weights, to check vitals, anything that they did not have in their house prior to their visit to the ED. Follow-up appointment, we need to make sure and help them to understand the importance of following up with their primary care physician for their recovery. Making sure that they know when the appointment is, that they know where the appointment is, that they're able to make it to the appointment and just to instill in them the importance of that appointment to keep them from having to go back to the ED. And lastly is just a review of what we do or what they're gonna do in an emergency. Anything from difficulty breathing to chest pain to unconscious, yes, you're gonna call 911. But this population tends to call 911 out of the fear of unknown, not understanding how to self-manage their recovery or their symptoms that they're having They've been discharged to the ED. Why am I not back to 100% now that I'm back home? And my department at the Upstate Triage and Transfer Center has RNs on duty 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. So if a patient at 11 o'clock at night has a question about why their feet are swollen or why they're having pain somewhere, they are able to pick up the phone and call my department and be in contact with an RN for wow. support, for explanation, for direction if they do need to go back to the ED based on what they're, they're experiencing. So we have a local number and we have a toll-free number because here at Upstate we do see a lot of patients that live outside of Syracuse. So patients that live outside of Syracuse are also able to get us with the toll-free number. So these um, have to be patients that were seen at Upstate initially for something. These it's are patients not just for anyone to call. For this program, yes. For telecaring it, the report that we are able to generate indicates to us which patients had been to the ED and discharged back home. One of the adult EDs. It's for community ED and the downtown ED. Well, it seems like it would offer a great peace of mind for someone, particularly someone who's newly diagnosed and this is a new thing for them, probably have a lot of questions. You know, why is this happening to my body? What does this mean? 
and your nurses can answer those yes I do have nurses that are specially uh, specialty certified in gerontology so they are able to deal with this population and know how to explain things to them so that they best understand it I as a group this department is telemedicine or telehealth so everything we do is over the phone it takes a special skill set to be able to connect with somebody over the phone just by your voice and not with your eyes and your hands sure which is what nursing is known for. So it's it's definitely a special skill that the nurses at the Triage and Transfer Center do very well. Interesting. Well, I've got a lot more questions about heart failure, but first, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with nurses Joey Michelle Angelina and Lori Langdon about the new telecaring program that focuses on those with heart failure. Um, so Lori, back to heart failure, what, what causes it? Do we know, um, is it a genetic thing or? Well, the most common cause for heart failure is um, untreated hypertension. Um, Hypertension is like one in three in adults in the U.S. has high blood pressure and many people don't even know it. It is called the silent killer because it causes damage not only to the heart, but to that extra pressure in your arteries and your blood vessels can cause damage to any organ in your body but the effect that it can have on the heart is is heart failure one of the other more common reasons um, of heart failure is after a heart attack because if there is damage done to the heart following a heart attack that can also affect the heart's ability to pump blood to the rest of the body okay all right. Now, well, can if, I just say, though, that not everybody who has a heart attack is going to develop heart failure. Okay. But it is um, one of the main reasons that people can develop heart failure. Um, is it typically discovered if, if a person makes regular um, visits to their primary care doctor, is high blood pressure typically discovered that way? Yes, yes. Okay. Um, and that's why it's always good to, you know, keep your appointments with your doctor and get your blood pressure checked regularly. Regularly. But you can also get it checked, um, you know, at the drugstore. They have automated blood pressure cuffs. Many people have them at home or their family members do. Um, okay. Also, um, you know, a lot of times there's clinics and different things like that. One blood pressure that is high does not diagnose it. It has to be several in a row. And that's why it's good to just follow up with your with your primary care provider. Okay, so high blood pressure is one thing, but then... Um, developing heart failure is another. How do you, how do you diagnose heart failure? Um, kind of the gold standard for diagnosing it is an echocardiogram. Um, it's a very simple, uh, painless test that is done, but that is the gold standard. So echocardiogram that gives a picture of the heart, like a sonogram. Yeah, uh, much how um, a woman who's pregnant has an ultrasound. Okay. It's very similar to that, but it's of the heart, and. The thing with the echoes is that you can see the how the walls of the heart are moving. It lets you look at the valves of the heart, uh, the blood flow through the heart. So it actually looks at, at a multitude of things. And then when you get the results of this test, it is reported as a percentage. So um, what is normal is about 55 to 65% is normal. It's not a test you get 100 on. Okay. So, um, but anything under 40% puts someone at a greater risk for developing the symptoms of heart failure. You can still have it if you're above uh, 40%, but 
under 40 is really where there are some very clear treatment Risks. plans um, for and medications for people who have a result less than 40%. Well, what I wanted to ask, once you have that diagnosis, like you're below 40% or, or whatever, and they say you've got heart failure, do you always have that? Or is there a way to get back to where you were mm -hmm. before heart failure? Um, it's very individualized, um, but there are medications, um, and a lot of them are actually blood pressure medicines that a lot of people are on anyway, but there's a lot of research that shows that there are particular classes of drugs that actually can improve um, the heart, the heart's pumping ability, and therefore um, improve the symptoms of heart failure. So, it, uh, other than medications, are there other ways that heart failure is treated? Um, heart failure is a progressive disease over time, and um, as the over time, as there's changes within the heart and the structure of the heart, there are other, are, there are other tre treatments. Um, lifestyle changes, such as losing weight, um, avoiding salt, uh, um, alcohol, drugs, that kind of thing, will help to make the heart better, can help make the heart better. But then as things advance, there's also um, certain types of pacemakers, internal defibrillators, and then more advanced therapies would be uh, something called a left ventricular assist device, which is implanted in the heart. And then the ultimate thing would be a heart transplant. Not everyone's going to go down that path, but that as the disease progresses, it definitely can progress to that. Does um, having heart failure complicate other diseases that the person might have with diabetes or asthma or cancer? Does, does it uh, connect with other diseases um, in a negative way? A lot of times people can be going along with their heart failure very well controlled, but getting sick with something else can actually trigger their heart failure symptoms. Something sometimes is as simple as a cold. And... Um, Chemo can affect, can actually cause heart failure. There are some chemo drugs that um, are toxic to the heart and can cause heart failure. But uh, many people who have heart failure also have diabetes and COPD. And it's um, sometimes it gets, it's not so black and white what they're sick with sometimes. And um, so it's, that's why it's so important to stay in touch with their physicians, with their okay. providers. Okay. Well, uh, Joey, your nurses are set up to answer questions like that. If, if someone with heart failure has got a cold and now they're feeling other things, I mean, that might be something they would call with questions about, right? Correct. The nurses are there 24 hours a day, like we said. They do have the ability to use triage guidelines to decide whether or not the patient needs to be seen in the ED or the patient needs to be seen by their primary care physician or if their symptoms can be treated at home and the nurse at the triage and transfer center will give them those instructions off of the nationally accredited guidelines that we use. Neat. Well, that's good to know. Thank you both for being here. Appreciate it. My guests have been uh, Joey Michelle Angelina, a nurse manager in the triage and transfer center, and Lori Langdon, the heart failure program coordinator at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.
Next up, a robotic exoskeleton that helps people with spinal cord injuries learn to walk again on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. We're talking about spinal cord injury and what's available for people who are rehabilitating with Dr. Giselda Casella. She's part of the Spinal Cord Injury Program at Upstate in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Welcome, Dr. Casella. Thank you to, for having me here. So that makes you a physiatrist. Tell As, us exactly. what that physiatrist is. Physiatrist is a doctor of rehabilitation. rehabilitation. We are trained as a, a physician uh, after the, the, the medical school we have residency in rehabilitation which, which means that we are trained in neuromuscular diseases in in uh, uh, muscle skeletal diseases and childhood diseases too that affect function mobility adls ADL is uh, activities of daily activities of daily living. So our objective, our goal is to coordinate a big team of professionals uh, with also treat medical issues, medical uh, diseases that will affect function. Our objective is to improve function and help these patients to achieve their best functional um, potential. And after then on disease. top of that, after that training, you also have a fellowship um, uh, yes. from in spinal Absolutely. cord injury, right? Absolutely. While in a physical residency, we do receive training for spinal cord injury. But if you want to be subspecialized in a spinal cord injury, you have to go to a, a fellowship in, in a ACGME-credited uh, spinal cord injury fellow and disorders fellowship. Okay. We only we not only see traumatic diseases, but also disorders of the spinal cord. I think because a lot of people, when you think of a spinal cord injury, you think of the trauma, the accident, or the skiing accident, or whatever. Um, but there's yes. a lot of other reasons that your spinal cord absolutely may be injured, right? that's correct. Uh, traumatic spinal cord injury compared with traumatic brain injury compared with stroke, heart, uh, cardiovascular disease, is not a very common disease. Uh, we have 17, about 17,000 new cases a year, and probably we have in the United States, according to the last spinal cord injury facts and figures, uh, we have a, probably about 350,000 people living with a spinal cord injury. And is it mostly um, most male? that is tra traumatic? Mostly okay. male. Eighty percent are male. But and when we you, don't we don't really know why it affects uh, men pro more. Probably because of the the causes of the spinal cord injury. Most of them are related to vehicle accidents, then oh, falls, okay. then uh, violence like gunshot wounds or um, other types of violence. So uh, probably that has to do with the predominant okay. 
predominantly male population. Um, but when now that our uh, population is aging, we are seeing more and more spinal stenosis with myelopathies, cancers, and that tumors that are compressing or are um, originated in the spinal cord canal or adjacent structures, infections. Um, arthritis? Arthritis, yes. Oh. Arthritis, the aging of the, 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 the bones around that in, envelop the spinal cord. They form osteophytes, herniated discs, all that encases uh, in the spinal cord and can cause stenosis. And, and stenosis is a... Just a... Um, when you, you see not much space around the spinal cord and okay. can compress, a, a compression so of the spine. tighter spin. and... Yes, um, much tighter than the, the usual. Uh, the spinal cord is bathed by the, the, a fluid that bathes the brain and the spinal cord. And when this stenosis is uh, progressing, you see... The, the compression of the spinal cord. And that can even cause severe deficits in function. Well, what I wanted to ask you, what are the types of things that a patient would see? Like, what are some of the deficits someone would okay. deal with? Uh, gait impairment, multiple so falls. The ability to walk? Yes, falls, balance problems, abnormal bladder function, like patients start having incontinence or urinary retention, uh, spasms, uh, sensory abnormality, weakness. But sometimes it's just as simple as um, balance problems. Patients start falling. They don't know exactly what. Then they, they a physical exam will show uh, re changes in their reflexes, in the sensory uh, distribution and the strength, and then that alarms that sounds the alarm for uh, spinal steroids. Are these um, deficits that develop are they permanent? Well, they can be permanent. They can, if they are very severe, even after you do the the compression, surgical decompression of the canal with a, a spinal surgeon. Uh, you never know how much recovery you, you will get after the surgery. You certainly stop the process, the progression that is slow but certain. If the, the stenosis cap keeps progressing, you're going to see deterioration of the function in months, years. So, But when you do the, the, the compression of the spinal canal, you may see some improvement, but definitely you stop the progression. We, okay. we don't know. That, that is why re, uh, rehabilitation is so important, because we, we will intervene after the surgery to maximize the, the recovery of these patients. So treatment usually involves some sort of surgery for... Yes, for the spinal stenosis, if it is severe enough that is causing symptoms, yes. Now, some of the traumatic injuries, are those? Uh, 
In, does that well, involve surgery too? So most of them. If there is, uh, well, the, uh, a neurosurgeon, spine surgeon would be a better um, person to, to answer the question. But what we, we know is that if there is instability, it depends on the type of the injury. But if it is instability in the spinal canal, yes, you have to to stabilize the the the, the bone and you have to decompress the, the canal to to improve the outcome. Um, obviously, infections need to be drained and treated, and um, bleeds. Sometimes you have uh, uh, now our population is aging with more. Uh, atrial fibrillation and more anticoagulant therapy they bleed you know we see that so it's a complicated it sounds like long-term absolutely um, treatment and rehab absolutely absolutely all right. Well, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Giselda Casella from Upstate's Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation about spinal cord injury. Um, all right. So, does uh, spinal cord injury does that impact a person's life expectancy, or can you live, you know, a healthy life after having a spinal cord injury? Well, that answer is very complex because we, when you say traumatic spinal cord injury, we are, um, we have to limit to the different brackets. There are several types: tetraplegia, when you have all limbs involved. Tetraplegia Para is all four limbs. For all four limbs, okay. and paraplegia, only two limbs, the lower extremities. Okay. Um, and you can be incomplete when you have motor or sensory incompleteness or complete when you have motor and sensory com uh, completeness. What do I mean? What so we that have you, can't, you can't feel anything or, yes. or move? Absolutely. Okay. We have an exam that's called age exam. It is a very standardized exam where we classify patients from AIS, Asia Impairment Scale A, to E, that is full recovery. 1% uh, only of the patients. Full recovery is pretty rare. Very rare. It can happen. I, we have a couple of uh, patients here. Um, but the majority of patients will be incomplete. They have some sensory or motor function left below the level of the injury. Complete, you don't have sensory or motor function below okay. the injury. You may have some very patchy um, exam, but still you don't have the, the, the motor or sensory. So depending on the level of the injury and the completeness of the injury, you see a different functional outcome. For example, if you have a C4, so C4, a patient has not much movement of the arms, very little movement. So of tetraplegic, the arms. A tetraplegic complete. Not much. Okay. That has uh, complete sensory in and motor below C4. C4 is around your shoulders here. They are able to live without a respirator. They can breathe spontaneously, but they are completely dependent on care for everything. Sometimes they can 
move a little bit your, their arms, but they can be independent for wheelchair, wheel, power wheelchair mobility with a chin control, with a head control. Uh, so inter, um, technology is very helpful for these patients because they can move around with a well-adapted uh, wheelchair. On the other side, when you have a, if you have the same level, but an AISD with a very mo uh, high motor score, these patients are community ambulators. Maybe they have a... So it's a, very, very individualized. Absolutely. Well, I, I wanted to ask you about the new technologies. Um, mm -hmm. We have an exoskeleton-assisted walking yes. device. Tell um, me about that. Okay, exoskeleton-assisted uh, walking is... It's been around for a while and was actually... Uh, started in the military to with the idea of making those super um, warriors able to carry heavier loads and stand longer walks. Oh. Yes. And then that was kind of transferred to the industry and then now to the health industry. Uh, and the, the, the concept around it is that the machine will do the walking for you. The machine has, is literally a skeleton that is outside the body, that has motors, a battery, that does the walking for you. And the job of the patient is just keep balance with two crutches and shift weight with the trunk so the machine reads the changes in in, in position of the, the patient and can pace the, the step. So it sounds like this isn't for all patients with no. spinal cord injury but you have to have some strength absolutely and um, ability to absolutely not for example very high tetraplegic patients cannot use that um, we you have to individualize the, the, the use. Sure. Um, but for, as a general rule, you have to have good upper extremity strengths, strength. So most of the tetraplegic patients cannot do it. Most Is it a training device to help them uh, improve their own individual abilities, or is it more...? Well, that's one of the benefits, but it, it is a locomotion device. Neat. Locomotion. So patients, for example, that are able to, that, that use a manual wheelchair and are able to transfer independently, they seem to be the best candidates. Well, so. thank you so much for telling us about this. My guest has been Dr. Giselda Casella from Upstate's Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
Georgia poet K.B. Kinzer has written a searing poem that provides a very different perspective on transplant donors and recipients. We have a traditional narrative that usually governs the subject of organ transplants. This one makes us see it anew. Here is Letter to the Donor's Family. My son is dead now too. I tell you this because I don't want you to think you can touch your loved one again, even a small part, something I yearn for myself, to be near some living part of my son every day, a gift I wish my son or I had given you while he was alive. I write to say how much your loved one's death helped my son live, really live, for three years, five months, two weeks, and 19 hours longer. For 24 years, I imagined the grief losing a son would wreak on my life, but had no real conception of the pain. I am so sorry for your loss. I've struggled to write since the transplant to tell you how our lives changed and urged my son to thank you, but he would not. He knew more than I did his time was short and pushed past your grief and anything else on his way to enjoy whatever time remained. I'll tell you about the changes in our house after your family's gift. First, oxygen machines. We took them out, two big ones, along with 20-foot cannulas Bobby had to drag around. We returned them, along with oxygen tanks we'd needed to travel anywhere. And time. We had so much more. No therapy, no equipment to clean and prepare. His medications cut in half. Bobby gained weight for the first time in his life without help. His fingers, clubbed at the end like E.T.'s, straightened out. No one saw the huge clamshell scar across his chest where they scraped his lungs out and sewed the new set in, a perfect fit. Off the ventilator in record time, he left the hospital to travel around the country, Vegas, New York, Florida, Chicago, all without mom, perhaps the greatest gift. For 24 years, I refused to dwell on the poor quality of life and the death the doctors said would come for my son. But I never dared to think his life could be as good as it became thanks to your gift. Since then, you and your family have been and will remain in my thoughts and in my prayers. Thank you again. Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. On HealthLink on Air next week, we'll have the latest on prostate cancer from Upstate's Chief of Urology. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening.